Welcome to season two of Best in SaaS, where we talk through the patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to 20 million and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Despite the world melting around us, we survived season one with only a few scratches and a couple of bathroom incidents from our resident Best in SaaS puppy mascot, Stuart. Wash your hands and don your favorite face mask because here comes season two. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am thrilled, per usual, for you to listen in on this conversation. But before we get into it, if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the discussions, do me a favor and let us know by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks find the show and it helps Apple realize they should feature us on New and Noteworthy. So that would be awesome. With that, Enough of my blabbing. Let's get on to the episode. Right on. So today, really excited to have Mike Lindstrom on the show. Uh, we're going to dig in today. Mike has this amazing background. He has his JD, uh, but he spent his career. I mean, now he's an author, a speaker, a business consultant uh, to Fortune 500s, as well as you know, growing emerging tech companies. Uh, but this episode today, we're going to focus in on the, the psychology of you know what does it take in Mike's experience with all of the all of the clients and companies he's coached, what does it take to have the right mindset to go from that one million to ten million and beyond in ARR? So, Mike, really thrilled to have you on the show today. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, like, let's start with your background because you have such a, a wild, twisting and turning background. I mean, Tony Robbins is is one big piece. The having your JD another big piece. And then ultimately, your work with you know Fortune 500s as a as a coach and leader. Um, we were even connected by Scott Lees, right? So you you uh, I know from your background, you coached Scott's sales team back in the day, and Scott the leader. So walk us through this. Like, how, how did you get to where you are today? Well, you know the age old saying, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, I, I probably heard that a million times as a young man, but you know, I've just come to know that to be true because every venture. That I started, whether it was going to law school, it was kind of like monkey bars. The way I think of it, you swing from one thing, and then it's something's going to show itself during that period. So, law school introduced me to a very dear friend who happened to be working for Tony Robbins, and I was intrigued by what he was doing and and the influence he was having at a professional level. Not to mention, he was making good money and he was traveling, which is sounded pretty cool for a twenty five year old law grad. So, I monkey barred to that. Completely went. Uh, the opposite direction of most of my classmates are all going to the U S attorney, DA public defenders. And I go work for a motivational speaker. And everyone laughed at me and thought I was crazy, but uh, it was like an extended education for me. So I did that for a couple of years, but what I learned was a lot of business. I frankly, I went straight from college to law school, right to Tony. So I didn't have corporate experience. So be able to bang around with CEOs and, and salespeople and understanding what culture was and branding and marketing and uh, the titles I would always just see, but never really fully understood. So that was really kind of what created the, the initial DNA. And then, of course, after I left um, uh, the Robbins organization, after he built his coaching company in, in La Jolla, California, I got swept up in dot coms. And a lot of my dot com friends up in California were former Tony guys or speakers or people I'd worked with. And uh, man, it, it was awesome to get swept up in that, literally, literally living in San Francisco, working on a Palo Alto in 99, 2000, 2001, when all this stuff was really going crazy. Um, so that's, of course, you meant, mentioned Scott Lee, that he, him and I jumped on a, uh, a ship together uh, after the dot-com bust and, and kind of brought it back up. You know, we're, we're still connected and, and, 
And I, I still do business consulting, but I've niched in many different areas. So financial services, insurance, startups. I tend to focus on leadership now and sales or psychology of influence. Sure. So I, I, you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited for this conversation is I think, especially in, in the community, but even on this show, we, we have this tendency to focus on strategies and tactics that are uh, could, could be segmented functionally, right? Like marketing strategies and tactics, sales strategies and tactics, product strategies and tactics. And it, it almost misses the foundational piece, which is mindset and and the mindset of all of the leaders who are behind those strategies and tactics. And so I'd love it if, if you could kind of take us there uh, along for a journey with what you've seen, what you've obser- observed as the patterns that successful leaders exhibit in that early stage, and maybe even compare and contrast that to the executives and leaders at the, the you know, the Fortune 500 businesses you've worked with. And what are the differences are between those two groups. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was interesting when I left the... Well, I, I should back up a little bit. When I was working with, the, with Tony on the road, we worked predominantly with Fortune 500 companies at that time. Um, you know, So we were working with mostly, like I said, leadership and sales teams. So when I, when I started the coaching element, I, I, was, I was actually kind of blown away that so many you know, important leaders, you know, these are educated people doing very well financially really didn't understand the science of it, the science of psychology, the motivation factor, what I call mindset language patterns, which is based in what we call neuro-linguistic programming. And I would just do casually, I would do an audience as a show of hands. How many people in here, let's say 500 people, uh, could tell me what the uh, the elements NLP, you know, neuro-linguistic programming stand for, you could stand up and give me a 30-second version of what it is. Hands just didn't go up. So it, it became what I what I deemed a one percenter mentality. What the one percenters that would raise their hand or come up to me at the break and go, I can't believe you brought this up. That's like the secret sauce, man. You can't tell tell everybody what the secret sauce is, right? <laughs> patterns. So that opened my eyes to realize, to made me realize in my business when I was going to go out and start consulting on my own, that was going to be my entree point. Is go out there and talk to big, my first big corporate client was uh, Guardian Life Insurance Corporation. Guardian's huge. And I'm dealing with the mid-level managers and the top producers, what they call their top gun reps. And I did the same thing right at the beginning. I do a show of hands. How many people know what this is? And uh, a couple of hands went up. So the next three or four hours in a, a training session, people are just taking crazy notes going, this is like the Jedi stuff, man. This stuff's awesome. You know, how you can read people's you know language patterns, how you can read people's physiology. So that's when I realized that that one percenter mentality was something that I was going to always focus on. So when whenever you would get with that one percenter, whether it was a small business, like you talk about that that one million dollar year, then they to the five to the ten million dollar company that goes above and beyond. Those leaders, they were they wanted to know this stuff, right? They thought different. They wanted to know the secret sauce. They wanted the Jedi stuff because they wanted to be better influencers. They wanted to be better public speakers. They wanted to be able to motivate their sales teams on completely different levels. So it didn't matter if I was talking to a big company like Guardian Life Insurance or a startup company. It was always the one percenter that gravitated, you know, and wanted to hire me as their coach or, or their speaker or as their business consultant, which is like when Scott Lee and I met, they hired me as an outsider to come in and teach their t- the teams these technologies that people don't really fully understand. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about small companies or big companies, there's still that one percenter that exists within each of those. And those are the people that really want to take it to that next level. 
Totally. So, so where, like, where is the break between folks that you were around that, that were, that were ultimately successful and the ones who weren't like, and they, you know, they, they have the same education, they have similar playbooks, but like certainly this mindset and, and just the, the way that they think about problems and themselves and, and how these pieces fit together. Like what's the difference between success and failure and what you've seen yeah, the one the one thing I would say the the common thread, and I could you know think of specific individuals. They were always the successful ones were always thinking about investing in themselves, right? Getting better, learning new skills, and learning new techniques, learning what else is out there. What am I not seeing? And I and I mean that not just from like just a textbook perspective, understanding marketing or branding, right? I'm talking about mindset. They want to understand how the brain works. They want to understand when they go down to the sales floor and you got 100 people in a call center, how does that CEO or VP of sales relate with those human beings that are going to be selling their products and services? They were just obsessed with always learning. And, you know, fast forward, the beauty of, of now in 2020, dating back to, you know, compared to when I came up in the industry, 97, 98, now we got everything right in our fingertips. It's on your cell phone. I mean, hell, you could Google something or you can go get the elements of neurolinguistics in a heartbeat, or you can go listen to a podcast, listen to a guy like you, have a guy like me break it down for you in a matter of minutes, right? Or back then, you had to literally read the books. You had to go to the seminar and spend five days in a seat, in a, in a hotel room and invest in yourself, right? That's what those leaders were, were constantly doing. Now you fast forward, all the leaders that I know that are wildly successful, they're always listening to podcasts. They're always reading. They just have a certain kind of a discipline because they're uh, they understand the three elements: mindset, language, which is how you self talk to yourself and what you speak out loud, and your patterns. Patterns are simply behaviors. When do you wake up in the morning? What's your habits before you eat breakfast? They have a really keen understanding of what those three elements are, and that's why they continue to be one percenters. So, do, uh, do you think that these are universal? In that, I mean, you know, uh, let's say that marketers tend to be more and this changes all the time and there are different types of marketers but like marketers might need to be a little bit more on the creative side uh, creative and analytical side whereas you know salespeople need to be really outgoing and and empathetic and uh, there's a ton of overlap here and i'm, I'm right. butchering this horribly by by generalizing but uh you get the point like so are these things universal truths or when you're working with someone or an organization do each of these functional groups need to kind of work on themselves in different ways to see success? Yeah, that, that's that's a great point because you're right. You're talking about somebody who is, especially now when you're talking about marketing, marketing is not now what it was 20 years ago, but people that are, you know, in a, let's say a marketing leader versus a sales leader, which obviously there's a lot of crossover. They're, they're just looking for the things that are unique within, you know, their specific niche or their, or their forte. But, the, the, the crossover is that the, the ones that are successful successful are, are still trying to be better communicators. So that, that and that's what it takes to be an, an incredible uh, executive or leader. It doesn't matter. You go to the you go into the boardroom. You got you got a CEO. You got a CFO. You got a CTO. You got all your you got all your leaders right there in the room. The ones that are going to be more the most effective are the ones that are are trained or have learned the psychology of communication. 
I mean, literally human nature, right? How to go into a poor room and sell your point, you know, to the, to your whole group, not how you sell your point on the internet because you have a, you know, a, a killer Facebook ad. That's not the kind of communication I'm talking about. The communication of just understanding how human beings operate and the way they think, what they're motivated by, understanding their pain and their pleasure motivations. Those are the people, it doesn't matter what their niche is or their forte is, they're obsessed with learning what those skills are. So how, how do you differentiate when you come into an organization, whether again, whether it's Fortune 500 or smaller, you know, emerging technology company, mm-hmm. how do you differentiate between when strategy is bad or needs adjusting versus when mindset is bad and needs adjusting? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the question I always ask, well, if there's a statement I'll usually put out there when I meet a company. It, it's simple, but there's a lot to it. Beliefs drive behaviors, right? So beliefs drive behaviors. Where do your beliefs come from? Life experiences, your, your upbringing, where you grow up, where you, where you physically live, right? Your, your geography. All those things are your, are your belief systems. So the first thing that I'm doing when I walk in an organization, it doesn't matter if it's a you know Fortune 500 company or it's a company that's got you know 12 people in that room and they're just fired up because they're going to be the next you know Google because they're so passionate about what they're selling. The first thing I have to do is I have to do a temperature check on their mindset. I have to do a belief check. See if they believe that they are going to be truly the next you know Google and, and <laughs> they have nothing to stand on. Well, it says a lot about their mindset, right? It's the old as it act as if. When they act as if they're a big company, the behaviors probably will follow it, meaning they will invest in themselves. They'll take chances. They'll be risk takers. They'll do the little things that other leaders or other companies are, are not willing to do. Again, they kind of go back to that one percenter mentality. So I can't really get into the behaviors part, which is how they market themselves. How do they sell on the sales floor? How did their salespeople literally pitch You know, when they're on a Zoom or they're doing a, a deck? That's like the extended part of it. I first place I have to go is at the nucleus, which is the DNA of their belief system. Once I understand the belief system, their value system, what's important to them, what are they afraid of, what keeps them up at night. Uh, I do my own surveys with my leadership teams when I meet them for the first time so I can gauge all these things. Once I've done that, then we get into what you're talking about, right? The strategy. What's the best way to push the, push the product or service into the marketplace, you know, given what their passions are, what their purpose or their why is. So that, that again, that purpose and why we, we hear about that so much in fortune 500 companies, but you'd be surprised, man, how many times I'll walk in and do that temperature check on those first few sessions. And I'll, I'll throw it out to the group and say, okay, guys, before we get started, I need to know what's your purpose and your why before we can even start talk strategy. Uh, and sometimes you get blank stares going, yeah, we know we, we, we read Simon Sinek's book, but we didn't really do much with it. <laughs> but we need to, you know, I hear, that, I hear that all the time, you know? Sure. No, that's, that's hysterical. I, I sometimes find uh, startups will like, especially the earlier stage companies will like over index in the wrong way there. Cause we'll, I'll land on one of their websites. It will be like taking, digging, digging into it and figuring out why it's not converting. And it's, and like, their website is, they it took it really literally. They started with why, but then they never backed into like, 
why this thing is solving a problem for a real user's right. needs. <laughs> it's just their why. And you're yeah. like, this is awesome internally as a team, like beat yeah. the drum. But <laughs> you, know, like, you have to tell people what you're doing. Uh, and it's funny because they're just, they're like checking boxes. When you check boxes, you're not, you're just doing it for a fundamental exercise sake. But you have to translate, as you know, you're going to go click, you're going to go create a big funnel or you're going to create a marketing campaign or, or some kind of a drip. You've got to see how all the sequences tie together. But the only way you can get to that strategy is you've got to get back to that basic level of what's important to you, what's your driving force, what are you great at, and who are you targeting? Yeah. Totally. So um, let's see. I'm, I'm curious, like what, what are some of the signals? Uh, if, if you're a, an operator or an investor, it's probably more, more so for the operators and executives, maybe even founders, and you're looking at your team and you see that some people have this kind of innate quality clarity, they're thinking really big, they believe in themselves. And then you, you notice that there's some people on the team that don't have that. How do you think about when it's right to invest in those people yeah. and, and develop them and push them versus when it's just not the right fit and you need to get them off of the team so that your team can be playing like, you know, A players and, and pushing hard together on the same yeah. page? No, that's a great question. There's two elements I always I always drive on is heart and hunger, heart and hunger. I don't care where they went to business school. Um, I just I, I, I always want you know my leaders, my teams to to first examine the heart and hunger. If the, and obviously if the integrity is there, the, the integrity of who the individual is, but the heart and hunger is there. Then you go in that that level a little deeper, and you say, you know what, this guy's a little rusty. You know, when it comes to maybe his sales ability. But he will run through brick walls. This, this guy is just a diehard. He played football in college or he's a triathlete or whatever, right? You can see it outside of like the confines of that, of that team. That's the kind of person that you push in on. You know, one of the best coaching advices I got from one of my mentors here in Phoenix, uh, Gary Tucker, who used to run Motorola years ago. He's now retired and he's done very well for himself. We did a panel group uh, a few years ago with a bunch of leaders and we, we were as an open Q&A. And they said, you know, Gary, what's the toughest thing you have to do as a CEO? Now, you think there's a lot of answers that you probably would naturally go to. But the one that a lot of CEOs will land on is uh, firing someone, you know, having to let somebody go or be that ultimate decision maker to say, hey, this this guy or this gal is not a good fit for the bus. You know, they're just they don't have the heart or the hunger or they just don't have the skill set. And the way he explained it to me, it just clicked. He said, you know, people are good people. Okay, they have good integrity. They could have good heart, good hunger, but th- th- it's just not a good fit. That's literally what he said. That's that's how he fired people. It's just not a good fit. So it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you know all those degrees on your wall don't mean something. It's just where we're going here. It's just not a good fit. So I always start with the first two, which is heart, hunger, and, and checking in with those. Do they really, really want it? Right? Are they passionate about it? And if you could go through that, then you, they're deserving to be on the bus. You know, go back. That's all. You know, Jim Collins wrote the book years ago. Good to great. You know, great leaders are always trying to keep the right people on the bus. But the good, the good ones, they hold on to people too long, and it's unfortunate. But sometimes when you got to let that person go, you just got to follow. You know, Gary's approach. You know, you leave their dignity intact, and you say, "Hey, it's just not a good fit." I like that a lot. So, uh, Mike, I I always love to ask what you know getting to the point in your career that you're at right now, 
surely there are influences uh, that have been in your life, either as mentors or, you know, folks out there have just inspired you to do the work that you're doing and, and to be excellent at it. Uh, who are those folks for you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we talk about Tony. I mean, Tony's the the originator, if you will, for me, Robbins. But a, a lot, a lot, another name that's huge for me is uh, Dan Lear, uh, L-I-E-R. Dan was literally the guy who hired me. He was Tony's right-hand guy at that time. Dan is one of my best friends. We're a business partner. We've written books together. Um, he was in my wedding. <laughs> so he's doing incredible things, not just in personal development, Um but just communication, the for, you know, small startups to Fortune 500 companies. You know, I think about um, clients I've had. I've, a lot of people, my, my friend that I'm going to name here, he might be by surprise by this, but I have a client that I've worked with who's an attorney in Florida named Chip Merlin. Chip is uh, very known in the insurance world to go after the big companies. And when I started coaching Chip, I just would sit with this guy and see how he believed, how he thought. He just, he's not a good lawyer, good educator, you know, intelligent. But the way he just believed big, he made me believe bigger. So those are a couple off the top of my head. I have so many influences. Obviously, my father is a big influence in my life. My, my wife, uh, Monica Lindstrom, she's a local um, TV legal analyst here in town. And she's the one that kind of keeps me in check. Uh, but Dan Lear and Tony were the ones that really brought me into this world of personal development. I would be remiss if, if I didn't mention those guys for sure. Well, Mike. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. This was really enjoyable. Uh, and I think it sheds light on a piece of the puzzle that is so key and underlying and often overlooked until, you know, it, until it comes up. So thanks for, thanks for walking us through all of that. I appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, MikeLindstrom.com is my website. I'm sure you'll probably post that on your uh, podcast. So if anyone wants to reach out, I got um, documents to back up any of the stuff I've said. If you wanted to reach out, I'd love to connect with you. Perfect, Mike. Well, thank you again, Mike Lindstrom. Thank you.